Welcome to the Unteachables podcast. I'm your host, Claire, and I am absolutely no stranger to the challenges and let's face it, sometimes carnage of being a teacher. And if you found yourself here listening with me, I'd say that you might know a bit about that as well, because being a teacher is friggin' hard. And this podcast is dedicated to making you feel a hell of a lot less alone whilst giving you the knowledge, support and strategies that you need to not just survive the chaos of being a teacher, but truly thrive. Think about it as getting a weekly dose of relatable, actionable, and most importantly, enjoyable professional learning straight into your ears. So hit the subscribe button, download me for your commute, and let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another week of the Unteachables podcast. I'm going to be talking about something today that it comes up quite a lot in the conversations that I have about you know, the way that we approach teaching and learning. It comes up a lot um, just in my posts in general. Like I talk quite a lot about this and it's called the pedagogy of poverty. I read an article about this particular concept for the Everyday Journal and I can link you in the show notes to that. It's an amazing um, New Zealand journal by Lizzie and the University of Auckland read this article and they picked it up and they decided to make a compulsory reading for one of their teaching degrees which was a massive pinch me moment because one of my big, big goals is to impact the way teacher training prepares teachers for the job. And the fact that this article that I wrote about the pedagogy of poverty, about the way that we serve our students, it was picked up and taken by a university and it will be in the hands of all of these students going through. And I think it was for the primary degree. Um, it's an incredible start and it made me so happy and excited for the future. And of course, it's just a drop in the ocean and there's so much work that I I want to be able to do um, for these teachers coming into the profession. But yeah, it's an amazing start and it's really exciting. And hopefully this episode of the podcast brings you a little bit of information as well that will be useful in your practice. So the pedagogy of poverty, right? It's a term coined by Martin Haberman. He's a professor, a professor of curriculum instruction. And he went into a bunch of schools all over the US and he noticed something pretty concerning, some pretty concerning trends. The schools he visited were in quite disadvantaged areas and there were a lot of issues like low attainment levels and high dropout rates and youth incarceration. So all of that prisoner, like school to prison pipeline kind of stuff and obviously a lot of behavior problems to go along with that. And what he saw were two things. Uh, He saw that in these schools, certain groups of students like students of color, immigrants, English language learners, low income students, students with additional needs, they were all being left behind. Um, They were being completely underserved in these schools because instead of being taught in a way that helped them think critically and stay engaged in their learning or get engaged in their learning to begin with, um, these students were just being given busy work and, you know, this busy work was there to keep them compliant, to keep them under control. These kinds of pedagogies are used to increase compliance, these pedagogies of poverty. They increase compliance, they don't help them learn. They don't help them think critically. They don't prepare them for the real world. And the kind of things that they saw, like Martin Haberman saw being used in these schools most frequently was heaps of teacher-centered chalk and talk. So all of this stuff where teachers up the front as being the authority of the knowledge and then just talking at the students. And the reason why this doesn't work is because 
think about you being in a presentation. And I mean, you're listening to me right now, aren't you? And you're listening to me bang on about something. Um, but this is only for 20 minutes as well. And I'd probably start tuning out after listening to myself for a while. But think about you in a meeting and you've got someone up the front of the meeting and they're talking about something that you're not particularly interested in. How quickly would it take you to go to your happy place in your mind? How quickly would it take you to zone out completely, start doodling in your book? Uh, For me, it wouldn't take very long at all. I'm pretty bad in meetings that I feel aren't relevant. So think about our students that are sitting there and you're talking at them and they're trying to get engaged, but they can't get engaged with that. So in these schools, there was a lot of teacher-centered chalk and talk, just, you know, copy this down, listen to what I'm saying. There was a lot of rote learning and memorize, God, my baby brain today is just insane. I just did another podcast with the amazing Laura from the Kindness Curriculum. So that's coming out next week. But um, yeah, I just, yeah, my brain's just switched off for the day. Lots of rote learning and memorization. So what they were doing is maybe just taking notes off the board. They might've been looking in textbooks and rewriting the information in textbooks. They were just kind of going over the same questions over and over again that they might've already known, but they're just, you know, redoing it, redoing it, redoing it, not actually stretching themselves academically. Death by worksheet. He saw heaps of worksheets being handed out, lots of lots of worksheets that aren't necessarily, again, getting them to think deeply about anything, not critically thinking about things, not analyzing things. These worksheets that might have just been, you know, those like comprehension worksheets that we give students that are just like really basic, you know, read this and then answer 10 questions is obviously a place for them. But you see teachers giving these out all of the time. Um, no stretch or challenge, obviously. So in these classes that he, like these schools that he went into, there wasn't any stretch or challenge for these students. Because of this, there was very little student output. Students weren't actually doing anything. They weren't producing anything of quality. They weren't producing any work that mattered, that meant anything to them or for their learning. Um, all of it was very low order thinking. So thinking about blooms, it was all of just about the memorization, about the, um, you know, like let's write down definitions, let's, let's do things that don't actually require us to really go deep on anything. And there was very low expectations around progress. They didn't care if students progressed. It wasn't about that. It was just about keeping them quiet, keeping them happy, keeping them, you know, compliant and, and just easy, just keeping them easier. So think about it like this. When we get students to copy off the board, when we get students to do definitions or do a word search, the students are more calm and more settled. And this is because they're not being challenged. And this is why the pedagogy like this is used in classrooms where there are higher proportions of students who have social, emotional and mental health needs. These needs that manifest in those challenging behaviours, because it works, it keeps them calm, it keeps them quiet, it keeps them settled, it keeps them from pushing back against you. But it is also why the pedagogy of poverty is so insidious. It's so problematic because it takes away, like these students are the most vulnerable in our society. They're the ones where we should be trying to break the cycle of poverty. We should be trying to break that welfare dependence, that cycle. Um, And we should be trying to lift them up for these opportunities. But it perpetuates and feeds that cyclical poverty. It feeds all of those things we want to break for our students. We want to give them opportunities, not take them away. But the factor of the matter is when we have low expectations for our students, when we give them simple tasks that don't require much thinking, they reward us. They reward us through behavior that is less challenging. They reward us with quiet. They reward us with compliance. So it's far easier for us. And this is no judgment whatsoever on these, like these teachers. 
I have done it myself and I'll talk about that in a second, but these students are immensely challenging. As teachers, we are in survival mode most of the time. And when we're in these lessons, we do what we can and we do the best that we can. I remember first being a teacher and trying to manage the class. I sometimes would do an activity with them. I would I was trying so, so hard to get them to do more than what I, you know, what they were doing, but they just weren't listening to instructions. They weren't doing what I asked. They were just being really difficult. So I'd be trying and trying and trying and these students would be pushing back. They'd be yelling things out. They'd be throwing things around the room. They'd be playing basketball with, you know, pieces of paper. So what would I do? I, without knowing, (laughs) without being intentional about it, the pedagogy, pedagogy of poverty would kind of filter in. So instead of pushing them to do the task, instead of trying to bring them back to do what they needed them to do, I'd start writing notes up on the board. I'd start writing things up for them to copy. Instead of getting them to write a paragraph, for instance, I'd write one up on the board for them to copy. Instead of exploring concepts and ideas, I'd just write notes, you know. Um, instead of doing a task at the end of the lesson that got them really engaged in thinking, I gave them one that required very little energy. And without realizing why, like I didn't realize why I was doing this. And yes, I was in survival mode. And it wasn't until years later, I realized why I did that unconsciously and was able to reflect on it. That didn't make me a bad teacher. It makes nobody a bad teacher. It just makes us teachers that we did what we can, like we do what we can to get these kids engaged in something, like anything to get them engaged. And when we get them engaged in something that's low water thinking, we think that that's a bit of a win. Um, And it does feel like a bit of a win. So I work at a school at the moment that is a social emotional mental health school. It is for students that have very complex social emotional mental health needs. And all of these needs are the kind of needs that manifest in challenging behaviors. And when I first started working there, I walked in and, and just think, right, these students, they've come to this alternative, like alternative provision, and they've had a whole experience of education where they have been in this cycle of pedagogy of poverty, where they have gone into isolation rooms and been given sheets of paper to do like worksheets. They've been, you know, trying to be kept compliant through the work that they've got. And because of this, they have such little, and a lot of them have been out of school for a long time as well. So because of that, they come to our school and they have just got such low confidence in their own abilities. And they obviously do have these really big attainment gaps, like if you want to call it attainment gaps, but you know, they're like reading levels uh, at primary school level when they're in year 10. Um, so they've got all of these gaps. They don't have a lot of confidence and they've just been given work that is busy work because of their behaviors. And when I got there, what they were doing in English is finder words. They were doing things that kept them busy. They were doing things that kept them calm. And when I started being an English teacher there, they were like, oh, where's our finder work? Because they were just expecting to do that for their first activity just to settle them in. And a settling activity shouldn't be doing something that is completely switching their brain off. It should be engaging them in what is to come. Um, So it took a long time to break down that cycle and to get them to actually feel confident and capable of doing more than just sitting there and doing a crossword. And honestly, it takes a long time and you get so much pushback because they're rewarding you. So what should have I been doing to engage these students in the beginning when I was just kind of following along what they were <laughs> what they were wanting to do, which is not a lot of thinking. It does feel impossible, but for us to tackle this chestnut, we have to think of why this is a cycle that is so easy to fall into. 
Research shows that kids, when they experience trauma, when they have that stress response constantly triggered, it significantly impacts their brains and their ability to learn and behave in a way that's deemed appropriate for students in a classroom setting. The pedagogy of poverty only makes things so much worse because it reinforces the idea that kids who struggle in school are just lazy. They don't care about succeeding. We give them work that's low level, that has no stretch. It's just busy work because they don't really care about their learning anyway, right? But unfortunately, the students who are most affected by this thinking often end up believing it themselves, which can only make things worse and worse and worse and keep this cycle going because then they have an educational experience where they feel like they can't be successful. And of course, that is going to impact the rest of their lives, not just their time at school. And guess what? No complaints from these students. They're the ones who are most heavily impacted by these beliefs. They're the ones that reinforce this belief. They don't want to be challenged. They don't want to feel uncomfortable. They want to feel safe. And of course, this is unconscious. They aren't making these conscious decisions when they wake up in the morning. They're not waking up thinking, today I'm going to be really being a terror of a student if my teacher dares try to make me think about anything and dares try to give me work that's really high order. They're conditioned to be like this. They're conditioned by the school. They're conditioned by their upbringing to, you know, expect this for themselves. The brains of these students are constantly wired in this stress response. They need felt safety and not being academically challenged means they aren't pushed out of that window of tolerance. It means that they feel safer. It takes a lot of courage for a student who feels like they can't do something to sit there and actually attempt it and actually feel like they can give it a go. So in response to that, in return for that lack of challenge, they give you compliance and they reward you with this behavior. Thank you, miss. Not a worry at all. Let's just sit here and do this, um, you know, copying off the boards. They'll sit there peacefully. They'll fill in a closed passage. They'll write down 10 dictionary definitions. They'll complete the comprehension questions on five different, well, they'll complete those comprehension questions five times over if you don't have to give them anything else. And then they will push back hard if you try to deviate and do something that requires that higher order thinking. They will protest with their apathy or with their anger. And it looks like they don't give a crap about their learning. It looks like they're just lazy as hell. But the truth is they just don't believe in themselves. They aren't confident. They don't think they're capable. They feel like they're dumb. And it's really scary to feel like you look dumb in front of the rest of your peers when there's so much pressure around you. So what can we do? If we want students to feel safe enough to do this work, to to go out of their comfort zone and to try something new, to think deeply, we have to increase their felt safety in the classroom. And we do that through making sure our relationship's really strong with these students, that they can trust us. We do this through having really clear and consistent routines, like going visual and making sure they know exactly what's happening in that lesson. Um, And we help them overcome that confidence by developing their skills. We can scaffold things. We can model things. We draft things and compose things with them. We can get them to reflect and redo things together and strike that balance. It's so important to strike that balance between support and challenge. We need to be supporting them, but we're still needing to keep them challenged. It's about holding their hand a little bit. And then when it's like getting a kid to learn, not like I've had a child that's of that age that I'm teaching them how to ride a bike, but I imagine it's like uh, metaphorically speaking, a kid, I I remember my dad, he was holding me in the pool when I was, um, learning how to swim. And one day I looked back and he wasn't holding me anymore. So it's just about holding them to a particular point and then letting them do it themselves when they feel capable and confident to do that. Um, Sorry about all those weird analogies. So when we do this, when we support them, but we're still keeping them challenged, the messages that our students then hear from us as their teacher is 
I know you can do this. I believe you can do this. I expect you to sit here and do this work. I expect you to do the work that you need to be doing in this classroom, the work that every single other student is doing. And when we start to send them these messages, when we start to give them these messages non-verbally, these students can start to believe it for themselves and they start to raise the bar. Like students will always um, lift up to the expectations that we have for them. And if that bar is low, that's where they're going to go. Also, what we can do is really reflect on our own biases and our own um, preconceived idea of these students. Think about the narrative that we tell ourselves about our students and just catch yourself doing it. If we're labeling them as lazy or those kids don't care because of their behaviors, like they're just disrespectful, they're just rude, they don't give a crap, just catch yourself thinking that um, because it can make a big, big difference. If we go into our classroom thinking that about our students, we've kind of lost the battle before we've even begun. So really flipping our thinking about our students and saying, you know what, they've had a rough trot, but they can actually do better than that. It's not going to be an easy transition for not just our students to make, but for you to make as well. And things don't change overnight. But what you need to remember is when we set really high expectations for them, students can meet those expectations and really surprise us. Um, There's something called the Pygmalion effect, where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy about, you know, what we see about us, like think about ourselves is what kind of comes to fruition. And the same thing is of our students. If we think of them really highly, if we see them in a particular way, if we think that they can do amazing things, then they're going to start believing that in themselves. So so by telling them that they're capable of more, students do start to believe it and they start achieving more than they even thought was possible. Um, I don't know if you've heard Rita Pearson's TED Talk, Every Kid Needs a Champion. I'm sure that most of you have. I go through, I go and watch that quite frequently um, and watch it again. But it sums up, this quote sums up how powerful believing in our most vulnerable students is when she says, how powerful would our world be if we had kids who are not afraid to take risks, who are not afraid to think and who had a champion. Every child deserves a champion, an adult who will never give up on them, who understands the power of connection and insists that they become the best that they can possibly be. Um, If you haven't seen that podcast, I'll link to you in the show notes. Um, And it's amazing. I I definitely think even if you have seen it before, go and watch it again, because it's just so beautiful. And it just completely sums up what I'm talking about here with the pedagogy of poverty, that the more that we believe in them, the more that we think that they can do, the more that we have those high expectations they will get that message and they're going to then start believing it for themselves. But as I've said, it's not an easy journey. It's not something that takes, you know, two seconds to do. It's something that is so ingrained in um, the experience, the educational experience of these students. It's something that we have been doing for so long as teachers as well without realising it with just, you know, us being in survival mode. But little by little it will transform the way that these kids even present in your classroom with their behaviors and the way that they engage in their learning. And every single student does deserve that. So I hope that this episode talking about the pedagogy of poverty has given you some insights, has given you some points of reflection. Um, It definitely did for me when I first learned about it. As I said, it's something that I keep returning back to time after time. And it's something that I'm always kind of thinking about and talking about in training, because I think it's something that's really, really important for us to be reflecting on just not just for our students, but for ourselves as well as practitioners. And that brings me to the end of yet another episode of the podcast, everybody. And I really hope you just got a little bit of a tidbit from this. Um, it's giving you a bit of, you know, a point of reflection, something to take away and talk about in your staff rooms. If you did get something from the episodes, please share this with a colleague. Please share this with a teacher friend. Um, it's wonderful to have new people listening in and to be able to help more people. So um, please do that if you haven't already. Just recommend it to a friend. And if you're feeling extra kind to me today, you can pop over to the podcast 
podcast and leave a review because that really means a lot to me when I read what you've thought about the podcast, when I've heard um, your reflections on it as well. So have a lovely day, everyone, and I'll see you next week at the same time. Thank you.